Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Duff Sunheim, member of the Leadership Council of California Forward, past chairman of the California Republican Party, and your moderator for today's program. We want to welcome our audience members and thank you for your support of the Commonwealth Club. If you wish to make a donation, please text the word DONATE to 415-329-4231. That's 415-329-4231. And now it's my honor to introduce our two distinguished guests. Maria Bartiromo is anchor of Mornings with Maria and Maria Bartiromo's Wall Street on the Fox Business Network, as well as anchor of Sunday Morning Futures on the Fox News Channel. Maria, you're a busy woman. <laughs> Maria also is a two-time Emmy Award-winning journalist who was the first person to report live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, and in 2011, made history once again as the first female journal journalist to be inducted into the Cable Hall of Fame. Also with us is James Freeman, her co-author in this book, and assistant editor, page editor, for the and the author of Best of the Web column for the Wall Street Journal, as well as serving as a Fox News contributor. James also is a former investor advocate at the United States Securities and Exchange Commission. They're co-authors of the new book, The Cost, Trump, China, and American Revival. Our guests say that America needs an economic revival after the coronavirus shutdowns, and they argue that the playbook that resulted in the greatest job market in history can now put Americans back to work. Ms. Bartiromo and Mr. Freeman say that President Trump, by cutting red tape, and slashing business tax rates spurred corporate investment that led to record number of US jobs. And they say these policies will once again lead to prosperity. As we're just a few days from the presidential election, we're gonna have a very spirited discussion. So Maria, James, let's jump right into it. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Duff. It's an honor to be here and thanks to the club. Yes. So obviously with just a few days till we will finish the voting. I think it's something like 75 million people have already voted. Do either of you have anything you want to say specifically about the election and what the next five days may hold? Yeah, I, I think it's going to be uh, a nail biter. Uh, look, I think given the fact that so many people have already voted, I think you're seeing some decisiveness uh, on the part of uh, some of us. And uh, I think the next five days will be important in terms of voter turnout. And I think we're also going to be focused on uh, ballots and making sure that we have a free and fair election and that there's no, you know, hanky panky going on, which is, of course, we've seen some stories of that just recently with ballots being thrown away. James. Yeah, it's a tough uh, election to call. Uh, not that it's easy to predict uh, winners and losers anytime, but uh, when you've had so many states make these uh, pretty dramatic changes in, in the way that people vote, when you have this kind of odd campaign where Essentially, both parties are relying on Donald Trump to drive turnout. Uh, I, I think this is new in my lifetime, where you have a, a candidate leading in the polls who has kind of chronically had a problem through the primaries and now the general election with inspiring, motivating, exciting voters. That's that's odd, but uh, maybe uh, whether you know you love or or or, uh, or hate Trump, uh, that's enough to get uh, someone to the polls. 
Well, I'm always reminded of that famous philosopher when people ask me what the election results are going to be, uh, Yogi Berra, who said, I'm reluctant to make predictions, especially about the future. And so I'm reluctant to figure <laughs> yeah. out what's going to happen, especially after the surprise that we saw in 2016. Right. So the title of the book is The Cost, Trump, China, and American Revival. James, can you tell us how you came up with that title? Yeah, that's there. I, I think uh, it was actually Maria's idea to just focus on uh, things you can measure about Donald Trump. There are, there are so many things that can't be measured, and I think uh, he obviously inspires very intense emotions, uh, both in his supporters and his opponents. Um, but when you focus on things you can measure, you uh, you tend to focus on the really the central premise of his candidacy and then presidency, which was economic revival, uh, prosperity for American workers. And, uh, and it also relates to things you can't measure when we, we talked about the, uh, the collusion theory that dominated so much of his presidency. And I think you can't really understand his presidency without understanding that resistance he faced. And that had to do with things that not only couldn't really be measured, but in the end turned out to be nothing at all in terms of a, a dossier of uh, accusations against him, which ultimately was proven to be false. Maria? Yeah, and I, and I think there's a cost to all of this, and that's why we uh, looked at what would happen, you know, if we were to see a reversal. In other words, there's a cost to undoing the tax legislation. There's a cost to putting lots of regulations on the economy after President Trump had a whole deregulatory program. There's a cost to turning the investigative uh, intelligence agencies of the United States government against a sitting president. You know, not only did what James just referred to, the collusion story, not only did that divert resources away from other things that were really needed in government, but it also, there's a cost on our trust in government today. You know, I mean, right now, there are many people who would say, I don't trust the FBI. I don't trust the CIA. We cannot have that in America. There's a cost to all of that. And there was a cost to diverting all of the energies of and the time of our investigative intelligence apparatus of the U.S. government, instead of focusing on, for example, uh, China eating our lunch and you know, stealing intellectual property and forcing the forced transfer of technology, we had our intelligence agencies looking for collusion, which we now know was a made-up story. So there's a cost to what takes place in the greatest country in the world. There's a cost to the policies that create economic progress and economic uh, prosperity in America and its impact on the rest of the world. Well, I think what's very interesting about this book is that so many people are caught up in Donald Trump's personality. And uh, you, I think, accurately say that a lot of times his conduct has been boorish. But I think America too often does focus on the personality and doesn't focus enough on the policies. For example, President Obama is very well liked by a lot of people. A lot of us are very proud that he was the first African-American president. But if you talk with people today, whether it's on the left or the right, there's some real doubts about the importance of his legacy. And I think the value of this book is really to focus on the, that legacy. And I think it does get lost. And I think there's no greater example of that than what's going on in the Middle East today. And I was wondering if you could address that. 
for sure. I mean, President Trump made it a priority to try to create uh, peace among nations in the Middle East. This is a priority that he has had. He's used relationships and charm offenses and uh, constant negotiations to go to the Middle East, talk with allies, to try to normalize relations. And the fact that you're seeing the United Arab Emirates say that they will normalize relations with Israel and then Bahrain and now the latest Sudan is an incredible story. The first time we're ever hearing such a thing in decades. Um, and and I think that this is something that gets you know underestimated uh, because the media constantly talks about his personality. And if it were just a little that, oh, I don't love the tweeting or, you know, oh, his personality is not my cup of tea, it might be okay. But the media has gone to such extremes to really ignore any successes that this president has had and just focus on these, you know, pet peeves that they have about him in terms of his personality. I mean, you never hear any stories in the media about Middle Eastern peace. You never hear the fact that income inequality actually began to narrow at the beginning of this year with earnings on the bottom uh, bottom end of the scale going up. These are real successes that are measurable and in plain sight, and yet the media refuses to talk about them. And I think there's a cost to that as well. And it's it's a sad state of affairs, frankly. Right. Yeah, I, I think the, uh, the Middle Eastern uh, uh, experience is a great example of this kind of uh, I guess informally, the call it the style versus substance question, where with Barack Obama, you have what uh, I think we would all say was a very statesmanlike presentation, very much applauded by the uh, experts around the world, the international diplomatic community, the, the press. Uh, it, it, it had the look and feel of serious business as he uh, did his uh, agreement with the Iranians. Well, it, beneath the surface, it ended up being lots of cash sent over to the mullahs who then did not stop their funding of terror in the region. You, you look at Donald Trump, okay, the style is unconventional. Maybe a lot of people didn't expect much. And here we have an, an amazing turn of events with, with countries that for decades have been hostile to Israel now coming to an agreement. And I, I think if the uh, political science professoria didn't hate Donald Trump, they would probably be marveling right now at how he somehow managed to create leverage almost out of nothing by uh, this sort of threat of annexation, which I'm not sure Israel was actually had any intention of doing, but but it was enough to, uh, to persuade or, or allow these uh, Arab leaders to, to seize the moment and opt for peace and, and commercial partnership. And um, it's, it's stunning to me that these sort of game-changing agreements in the Middle East are footnotes, while, as Maria said, we'll, we'll probably hear on, uh, on the news tonight about some offhand comment or, or a tweet that uh, will be forgotten in a week, but uh, is treated at the moment with great significance. And that's Nobel Prize worthy. It really is. Yeah. It really yeah. is something that so many presidents have failed in the past, Maria. I think that's exactly right. Um, as we're having this discussion, um, listeners are submitting questions, which I'm going to try to include in the discussion. And there's been a lot of interest in this uh, Mideast issue that we're discussing. And some of our listeners are asking, what do you think the implications are for economic policies and opportunities going forward that this 
deal um, allows. Do you have any insight on that, either James or Maria? Well, just as a threshold question, the upside is enormous. Uh, war and conflict is costly and destructive and and does not enable economic growth. And, and uh, here we have uh, uh, this uh, suddenly new opportunities all over that region. Um, I, I think the sky's the limit. And it, this is one of those uh, issues and really happened, uh, we should say this is not uh, uh, covered in the book because it, it happened afterward. But I, I think it's it's uh, similar to what we cover in the book where there is a, a, uh, a sort of a surface level treatment of Donald Trump as a, as a sort of buffoon. And then you look below at the at the substantive achievements and they're remarkable uh, maria was talking about the job market um, according to the government's jolts report this is a regular report it puts out on job openings really the best job market ever as long as the government has been keeping these statistics in terms of number of openings uh, we actually uh, ended up uh, several times in the trump era, era setting records uh and having that number be higher than the number of unemployed people, which was which was new in the United States, so um, it's uh, it's exciting. I, I, the uh, economic opportunities in the Middle East, I think, are uh, boundless. And and I think that you know peace begets peace because of economic growth. So when you have people feeling better and feeling more secure and seeing potential for economic growth and potential for prosperity for their own family, that creates peace. And wouldn't it be nice to see the United States create an ally group of countries that are actually together saying, we will not accept terrorism. We will not accept war and disruption. I mean, this is how these things start, by seeing alliances the way you're seeing. He's also done that against China's bad behavior. He has absolutely um, won the argument for, uh, you know, pushback against theft, against human rights abuses, uh, against spying on other countries. 30 countries at this point have now banned Huawei and ZTE. President Trump led that in terms of creating an alliance against bad behavior. And I think that's what ultimately partnerships within the Middle East will also do, creating an alliance against bad behavior and terrorists. Well, it's really interesting. We're also getting a lot of questions. Our, our listeners are very interested in foreign policy, clearly, because I'm getting a lot of questions about China as well. On a going, you, Maria, you just touched on some of the things that he's done in the past, and you discuss at great length how we got to this position. What is your view and James's view as to what we should be doing going forward in the next four to 10 years in terms of our relationship with China in general and also specifically economically? I think it has now become uh, well understood that China has broken promises and broken the rules on a global scale. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party is the villain. And this is not about the Chinese people. This is about the CCP, which has been stealing intellectual property for decades, which has been forcing the, the transfer of technology, acquiring companies all over the world and just stealing their technology with the one goal to create uh, 
a different world order and to put China as the largest superpower, most dominant superpower, both economically and militarily. And when you start to think that out and you recognize that you're talking about a communist country that wants to rule the world, that wants to be the number one superpower unseating the United States in that regard, they are not doing it through innovation or hard work. They're doing it through theft. And um, even during uh, a three and a half year period of back and forth between the U.S. and China trying to do a trade deal, the Chinese Communist Party would never admit to intellectual property theft. Meanwhile, we've spoken with uh, many CEOs that have actually put a number on it. In the book, we talked to Steve Ballmer, the former CEO of Microsoft, who said that it's $10 billion a year that should be Microsoft profits. And instead, uh, you know, it's it's going to the Communist Party because 90% of the companies in China are using the Microsoft operating system, but only 1% are paying for it. We have another great story about Motorola in the book, whereas one employee who was working at Motorola for a decade was actually stopped at the airport. She had a one-way ticket out of the U.S. to China, and she was caught holding all of these trade secrets and directions for patents that Motorola had. This has been going on for decades, and because the U.S. leadership has wanted to open up access to China, that we've wanted to have a partnership with China, the two largest economies, under the expectation that maybe China would change and see democracy uh, and say, well, you know, maybe we will move to the middle. We want to give up. We want to open up the economy so that we can have a a fairer relationship. That has not happened, that it's actually gone the opposite way, where the Chinese Communist Party has become even more inward and and even darker. And, you know, um, as a result, the president has put consequences in place, sanctions and tariffs uh, in place for China's bad behavior. They've used this, this coronavirus as an opportunity to invade other countries, invading India, killing 20 soldiers there, militarizing the South China Sea, moving into Hong Kong with new laws and regulations, breaking, you know, breaking even more promises. So I think at this point, uh, it's become much more well-known in terms of the Chinese Communist Party's goals, how it wants to unseat America. And I think that President Trump has been the first president, certainly that I've ever seen or, or learned about, that has actually put consequences in place pushed back on China and saying, no, we're not going to allow the CCP to uh, spy on Americans, you know, steal our technology and unseat us as the number one superpower in the world. And, uh, yeah, we talk in the book, uh, we understand uh, that the uh, the tariff tool has costs. There's no question about that. And uh, our, our hope uh, is that uh, the president pursues the uh, agenda he sketched out at the G7 meeting a few years ago, seeking zero tariffs in other countries if he wants to keep the pressure on China, uh, because these this is friction. This is added cost. But uh, where we really we go through the history, we we do give him a lot of credit for pointing out that the, the premises of our engagement with communist China uh, have really not proven out uh, for a, many, many years. Uh, the United States has been uh, welcoming uh, China into uh, our trading system, our capital markets, et cetera, on the premise that they are reforming. And and this, you go back to the first Bush administration after Tiananmen Square. Why was there not a more uh, aggressive response from the United States? It was because of uh, George H.W. Bush's belief that uh, that democracy was rising there. And we didn't want to disrupt what seemed to be uh, of a very hopeful moment uh, 
yeah, I think in, I think that's a fair characterization of his views. Um, but but now, more than three decades later, I think you have to say they're not reforming. It is not a democracy. It's actually crushing democracy in Hong Kong as we speak. Um, just uh, this week, uh, uh, a number of the students, uh, young people who had participated in in uh, democracy uh, rallies over the uh, last uh, uh, months uh, were being uh, rounded up. Uh, one of them uh, just across the street from the uh, U.S. Uh, from the uh, U.S. Uh, consulate, I believe, where he was going to seek asylum. Um, so it's a uh, it, it's I think it's been a healthy uh, uh, role for the president to make even uh, it's funny I, I think. People think of him as having a populist view versus global elitists. But I have to tell you that a lot of global elitists I talk to think he deserves credit for bringing honesty to this discussion. And whether it's uh, financiers that we talk to in New York or, or tech CEOs in Silicon Valley, I think a lot of them will speak very favorably of doing business in China on the record. And then off the record, they will tell you about the intellectual property theft and these other issues. Now, I think we can all debate what is the right response? What is the, is the tariff tool going to work? Is that the right way to go? Or are there other tools that are better? But I think recognizing the problem, which had been largely ignored for a very long time. Uh, uh, Maria writes in the book about how when she was... Uh, at uh, uh, anchoring business coverage for for years at CNBC, it was the story was all about you got to be in China, you got to tap into this enormous growth potential, and uh, as if there was there was no downside. That was sort of the attitude I think of a lot of companies, and and even now, obviously, it's an enormous market. It's the world's largest car market now. It's it's big in so many big categories, but. Uh, but I, I think we do have to recognize that the reforms that all of this economic engagement were premised on have not actually occurred. Right. And I think the Trump administration sees the corporate sector as not catching up to where we are on national security. I mean, yeah. if you, you know, we, we quote Bill Barr, the AG in the book, as saying, China does not want to trade with your companies. They want to raid your companies. And that was a quote that he gave in a speech this summer, basically saying that this is the norm and this is how they operate. And so I think right now, many companies still are looking at China as that growth story that James referred to, that they want to sell widgets to one and a half billion people. But the Trump administration is trying to communicate there are serious national security issues around this. And put the one and a half billion potential customer base aside for a minute and think about the national security concerns around America. And that's what the Trump administration is trying to communicate. They see the corporate sector as the last mountain to climb to uh, communicate that message. Well, and what's frustrating, not only that, but there seems to be a moral compromise that's being made by these American companies and they're willing to do things in China in terms of disclosure and cooperation with a government that they would never agree to here in the United States. And that, to many of us, is extremely disappointing. You're right. So with China, um, you want to, if you are in China and you want to Google Tiananmen Square, forget it. It's just not happening. You're, and Google agrees to that. They've right. got a different search engine there in China so that they can be in China. Uh, it's very troubling, actually. One of the things, I want to continue this uh, trip around the world. We'll get back home. But uh, James brought up something I think is very important that you mentioned, George, uh, 
H.W. Bush and how he talked about that we had this optimistic view of China, and that's led to a lot of the problems. I think another area of the world where there's this feeling that we were extremely optimistic and have, and are, many of us are not surprised that it hasn't turned out that way, turned out well, is in Iran. So do you have any thoughts on that? And given what's going on with the peace talks elsewhere in the Middle East, do you, where do you see things going with our relationship with Iran and our position in the Middle East in the years ahead? Well, I, I would say they have a even more incentive than they used to to uh, to join the sort of civilized community of countries, if you will. There's now, a, as we've said, kind of a burgeoning coalition joining together uh, uh, against them. But... Um, but I, Iran is interesting, just as we were talking about China, one of the things that made me kind of rethink the, the China issue is is there was this, I think there was a, a sort of a mantra that uh, our engagement with China is free trade. Um, and, uh, and of course, we like free trade. Uh, Milton Friedman, we point out in the book, warned about what kind of trade you end up getting with a communist regime. But uh, uh, my point is when... Uh, when Iran does horrible things and threatens neighbors and funds terrorism, and we seek to use economic tools to dissuade them, um, I don't think there are a lot of people saying, oh, but, but, uh, but we should have free trade with these thugs. Whereas, you know, for, I think for a long time, it was, uh, it was seen as uh, out of bounds to say that maybe we ought to think about how do we use economic encouragement to, to get China back on the, reform path that that they're not on and that we we hope they would be but uh as far as uh iran goes i i do think uh these new agreements uh, uh create pressure on them to uh to reform and i i think the opportunity is there for them to have a beautiful commercial relationship with the u.s i think that's what the president would say i think he's ready if they want to seize that moment and you know i think one thing that donald trump has done that has been real effective is to just keep many of these countries on their toes they are he's very you know it's a, it's an unexpected uh situation you know we opened the book with a story of uh the first well it was actually the second meeting the first meeting that he had in terms of an overseas uh welcome was with the prime minister of australia but three months into his term uh in april of 2017 donald trump hosted xi jinping at mar-a-lago and you know sort of rolled the red carpet out and had this beautiful dinner and you know, he he did an interview with me and he told me about dessert and they were having chocolate cake and, you know, there was the most beautiful chocolate cake you've ever seen. And um, <laughs> and in the middle of, you know, having serving him chocolate cake, President Trump delivered this stunning message to Xi Jinping and said, oh, you know, by the way, I want let me explain something to you. I want you to know that we just fired 59 missiles to Syria because they used, you know, a chemical attack on, on their people. And President Trump goes through that story with us and talks to us about how, you know, well, you know, then he asked the interpreter to repeat it. And I didn't think that was a good idea. And it's, it's, a, it's a good window into Trump's approach on things, because while, you know, people say, well, you know, he's crazy. I mean, he's, he's crazy like a fox because he leaves this uh, notion of you don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know what he's going to do next. And I think that has also resonated with 
the Iranian leadership that you don't know what he's going to do next. And he's not afraid to host Xi Jinping at his luxurious resort and drop the news that he just launched 59 rockets and, you know, strikes in Syria, which is obviously an ally of China. And that unexpectedness has actually served him well and served the country well. My friends say that I can take any event and turn it into a sports story. And uh, my son used to coach for Jim Harbaugh. And um, what Jordan found very interesting is that he never knew from one day to the next what was going to with Jim Harbaugh at the head. And while that may be somewhat disconcerting to those that work under Jim Harbaugh, when you're out on the football field on Saturday and you're the opposition and you have no idea what Jim Harbaugh is going to do, it can be last. So while I think some people focus on the internal machinations that go on within the Trump administration, there can be a real benefit of having that unpredictable personality. Do you have anything you want to add to that? Well, I just, I guess I would add that, you know, we can't uh, predict the future, but uh, uh, he did, uh, President Trump uh, related to Iran and perhaps being unpredictable, did the the world an enormous service uh, uh, getting rid of Soleimani, who was basically the the Middle East uh, chief uh, uh, organizer and sponsor of terror. So I think there were some uh, at the time who thought uh, uh, this would uh, immediately cause a, a conflagration uh, in the region. And uh, uh, so far, it looks like it it had the intended effect. Right. When I was growing up, the word allies was very important to me. And, you know, you studied about World War II and how important it was that we were able to develop such an incredible alliance around the world, which even included Russia, who we obviously had grave concerns about. And I read a book about 10 years ago talking about the real difference between the United States and China is we had 58 major allies and the Chinese really had no other allies. It seems to me in some ways there's been a lot written and a lot of concern about the fact that in some ways Trump almost seems to be more comfortable with his uh, his adversaries than he does with his allies. In fact, I had a former senior administration official said say to me, Duff, we've ticked off the Canadians. Do you know how hard it is to tick off a Canadian? So do you want to address that issue and what is the status of the alliance, the importance of the alliance going forward, especially relative to the threat that we face with respect to China? Well, look, I think, I, you know, I think that President Trump makes it a point to um, communicate that he's not, he's only married to the American people. He's not going to have, you know, as much as we have allies, if you do something against America, if it's not something that you promised, he will call you out. And um, look, I think the the uh, USMCA is uh, indicative of a, a, a great trade partnership that the US, Canada and Mexico have. It is better than NAFTA for the American worker. And I think that he continues to reiterate that his priority is putting America first, making sure that you're buying American and hiring an American. Uh, and, and as a result, that may, that may bother other nations, including our allies. But the president has continued to, you know, promise American people prosperity and jobs in America. And so he's he's not 
he's not going to apologize for it. And I think that's what his base likes. And that's why, you know, they feel like he's an outsider and, you know, upending things. You know, you've got you've got congressmen and congresswomen in power for 20, 30, 40 years, and you don't see the kind of progress that one would expect. So Donald Trump went in there, guns blazing, saying, you know, I want to drain the swamp. I want to do this. I want to, you know, call you out. And as a result, um, it threatened those people in power and their grip on power. And I think that's part of the reason that he's hated by some people who are entrenched in Washington, because they know that he's not going to apologize for calling you out, even if you are an ally. Now, that may or may not be the right, you know, approach or the right way to make friends, but he's didn't go to Washington for that. And that's what he makes very clear. Yeah. I, after uh, having the uh, sort of dust up with uh, the prime minister there, he did uh, cut the USMCA deal. Now we'll see. I, I kind of liked NAFTA. Uh, this to me looks like it, it, it we're going to pay a little more for automobiles uh, and maybe some other things on the other hand. Uh, this wasn't uh, uh, the the damage that I would expect it in some things, and I think in other ways it's actually an improvement when you look at some of the uh, uh, medical uh, intellectual property uh, provisions in there. And uh, for your Silicon Valley uh, folks, uh, embedding Section 230 in the USMCA was, uh, I think, uh, uh, quite an achievement. Now, obviously, we're debating in the U.S. exactly how this ought to be interpreted, but... Um, but it, but I think uh, yeah the, the the conduct of foreign policy is unusual and uh, sometimes when he talks about it in a way that sounds very transactional it I think for a lot of us it's kind of jarring and and uh, makes us scratch our heads grit our teeth but um, but I I do think when you look at at uh, something like Germany there there is a uh, a I think he's reasonably making a a uh, a point when he says you know, let me get this straight. You want more help from us to protect you against Russians, and you want us to spend a lot of resources, but you won't stop uh, doing this project with Russia that will make you more dependent on their energy supplies. Uh, you're, you're basically actively creating more leverage for Russia against you, and you're asking us to protect you from Russia. So I I, I get the point he's making there, and I and again, while it, the the language, the approach, it's often uh, unconventional, maybe not something that a lot of us would do. I I think in uh, in some ways, uh, bringing a new perspective is helpful. So uh, one of the things that you talk about a lot in your book are the tax cuts and how that's been so beneficial, not just to American industry, but to the American worker and how it has enabled people to bring their money from overseas back home and still meet their obligations to their shareholders. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, what its impact has been? And also, you know, Republicans historically have been fiscally responsible. And in, there was no offset, right, for those tax cuts, no offsets in the programs. Um, now there's been the huge expenditures with respect to COVID. Um, we were just talking a lot about China. China has a lot of goals, but one of them is to be the international currency. And a lot of our power is due to the fact that the U.S. dollar is the international currency. And from my perspective, it, it, it would seem that large deficits would 
decrease the value of our currency international. Can you talk about the benefits of the tax cuts and the risks that we run by not paying for those by reduced services and or the deficits that we're running at? Yeah, the, uh, I think there's a lot of research, including done by people who uh, ended up being economists for the Trump White House, showing that workers end up paying the corporate tax bill. And this is the result of a lot of research, a lot of countries all over the world. You raise the corporate income tax, you get lower wages for workers. It's the, the really, the academic argument is not whether this occurs, it's how much. Is it is it the full brunt or just part of it that ends up being borne by the worker when you add a, uh, a higher tax bill on, on a business? So, so I think this, that was among the, the great Trump achievements, really a game changer to bring the world's, uh, the industrialized world's highest corporate income tax rate down to a competitive level. Um, and uh, as far as I, there was a lot in the question, I agree with you on the, on the debt and spending. That's one of the concerns I have about coronavirus and I think why some politicians are more open to lockdowns and all of the costs those generate is that as bad as it's been financially, we really haven't been presented with most of the bill yet. Uh, our taxes have not gone up. The Federal Reserve has printed $3 trillion. Um, I, I worry about the dollar as well. Uh, we do talk in the book about that, and and, uh, and that's why we're, we're hoping that uh, since the president has uh, nominated rock star Judy Shelton uh, to, uh, to be on the Federal Reserve Board, that the Senate will go ahead and confirm her. She is the 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 uh, the hard money independent thinker that that institution needs, and they're going to have a, a challenge in the years ahead um, after really uh, expanding their balance sheet to make sure that uh, the the dollar remains sound, and that that's uh, really a, a, just a foundational job of government is not to destroy your currency. It's a really important point, and I think the future is looking increasingly like you know somebody will win the digital dollar. Uh, story. And so that's that's something that I would like to see the administration come out with a plan or, you know, a, a structure to, to deal with what we're talking about. In the meantime, I do think that uh, the tax cuts really did move the needle on economic growth. You're right about uh, both sides spending uh, restraint has gone out the window. And so far, the markets haven't really, you know, impact, you know, gotten impacted by this, but with interest rates at different levels, they will. And that could cause a real disruption that could spiral out of control. So I do think that in the next four years, should Trump get a second term, he is going to have to think about how to rein in spending. And he is going to have to communicate a plan uh, to, to cut the debt and deficits. Now, if you look at both plans, Trump versus Biden, even though President Trump is is promising another tax cut in a potential second term. He wants to wants to cut the middle class taxes, um, and and Joe Biden wants to raise taxes by four point three trillion dollars. Even though you're seeing revenue raise on Joe Biden's side, he's actually also promised so many expensive programs that the Committee for a Responsible Budget says that his programs are actually going to uh, add to the debt and deficits um, more so than Donald Trump's programs would because of all of the spending. So there's no end to the spending over the near term, I would expect in a second term, President Trump would have a lot more discipline. And I expect that he will come out with a plan to save Social Security as well. And it will mean 
you know, things like lower uh, retirement age and and the people uh, longer longer term getting less than than we're than the structure is in place right now. I think that he will do that. He's not going to talk about that during an election year, of course. But I do think that's a priority of his. A number of people have asked. Um, they they appreciate what you're saying about what he's done during the first term and the contributions that he's made. But what do you think is the biggest shortcoming or biggest mistake that he's made in the first term that you would like to see a completely different policy in the second term if he's reelected? You know, I, I'd like to see President Trump uh, attempt to bring us together. I think that's one thing that um, you know, is a mistake. I mean, the president has his way of doing things, and that includes he won't say, I'm sorry. You know, he won't say, oh, I made a mistake. You know, I think that is a mistake. I I think that, you know, in a second term, knowing that he doesn't have to worry about reelection and he can do what he wants for the next four years, it would be nice to see him approach some way to bring us together because there's just way too much divisiveness in this country. The hate has gotten really out of control and something's got to be done and the leader needs to do it. And I, and I think that he's got it in him to do it, uh, even though he faces incredible resistance and he's right about that. You know, the media has never given him a break. Inside government has never given him a break. And it's partly because he went there promising to drain the swamp and call you out in in whatever was underperforming. But let's not forget, he was only in the job a couple of months and Nancy Pelosi was asking the FBI to investigate him. Uh, Three years in, you know, Nancy Pelosi sat there and the State of the Union ripped up his State of the Union uh, speech. Something has got to be done to bring us together. And I think that's something that uh, he's going to have to deal with. James? Yeah, I think uh, the the spending is the big failing. Uh, This is, uh, we say in the book, this is one area in which he's unfortunately an utterly conventional politician. He's very unconventional in many ways, but uh, sadly, he uh, he is just like uh, uh, the uh, members of the House and Senate of both parties and his predecessors who uh, who failed to uh, enact uh, spending restraint. I, as Maria suggested, I, I don't think that would be a reason to vote against him because his opponent is offering or promising to spend much more. But uh, but I think uh, at some point the U.S. does face a reckoning. This. Um, uh, just uh, World War II levels of uh, uh, deficits and and debt, um, and uh, and it it will have to be addressed. I I think we've uh, we've really benefited, and it's wonderful how much faith the world has in the U.S. dollar, as you said. But uh, uh, taking that for granted, I think is is uh, is extremely dangerous. And so, uh, both in terms of the the Fed and the the fiscal uh, side, uh, I think that is the reform that has to come in the next term. We're getting a lot of questions on the area of the president's conduct. Um, I remember when uh, Clinton and the Monica Lewinsky scandal came out and I had young children, I was just, you know, what do I do, right? Do I turn off the TV? I tell my kids to watch the news and now I'm telling them not to watch the news because, you know, it's the type of behavior that I don't want my children to be emulating. Um, I, as my wife now says, our children are so old, we need to start lying about their ages. <laughs> For those who are in a different situation, and James based on the background there, it appears you're at the stage where your children are at a young age. 
very yeah. young, very young. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. You'd say that even if it wasn't the case, but, um, but that's important to our country, right? It's important to how we convey not only to the rest of the world, but to our family, the conduct of the presidents. And to what extent, A, is that in and of itself something that should be unacceptable and he should be called out on more? And B, how much of it does it blot out all the positive things that we've been talking about for the last 45 minutes? Yeah, I mean, I was uh, uh, watching those uh, Republican uh, candidate debates during the 2016 primaries and uh, was not uh, impressed with the behavior. I think I... Uh, I was on uh, Maria's network, maybe on her show, uh, several times, saying this guy is not going to become president, uh, and uh, and and he did. I, I guess over time, I just uh, I I've come to the conclusion one that um, you know it's it's perhaps unreasonable to expect people to change all that much uh, uh, after the age of seventy, for example. But uh, but I I think it's it's part of who he is, and I I guess it's. We go through in the book that uh, we knew the the weirdness uh, with the comments and the Twitter that was going to come with his presidency. What's what's really kind of stunning is how successful he's been, uh, and the the achievements in terms of uh, prosperity, liberty, rule of law. Uh, we were talking about this amazing group of justices and judges that he has seated. People with not only impeccable credentials, but a firm commitment to to interpret the law as written, not as they would like it to be. This is a huge legacy for years, and I, I think it's going to last well beyond uh, what anyone remembers of his particular comments here and there. Um, and I also, I, I have wondered at times if if these rough edges with him are part of his success, that um, I think there are certain moments where he is because he is uh, uh, comfortable not uh, uh, joining the Washington consensus, he has done some remarkable things, both in terms of the the game-changing reform on on uh, U.S. competitiveness with taxes and regulations, and with um, with the appointments. I, I have to say, as someone who really treasures constitutional governance, I I think Amy Coney Barrett is an amazing addition to the court, and I don't. I don't think a generic Republican president would have had the wisdom and courage to put her on the court. I want to get back to that court issue, but Maria, I wanted to back up just a little bit on that question more generally and see if you had anything to add. Yeah, on. look, I understand people who would get turned off by President Trump's rhetoric. I, I totally get that. But you know what? That's not why he went to Washington. He went to Washington to upend the system. He went to Washington to, you know, drain the swamp and ensure that the American people uh, were having the opportunities and the jobs that they want. I, I think that there is something called personal responsibility. And you know what? Learning, learning certain things starts at home. And yes, we all want a perfect person to be representing us that dots all the, the, the I's and crosses the T's perfectly the way we want it. But Sometimes when you have a perfect politician that says all the right things and does it with the allure of dignity and elegance, they actually don't follow through and they actually don't get it done. So I think people need to make a choice. And, and, and you know, it, it's 
you may not be able to get the perfect person that looks great on paper and that also, you know, fits your your perfect analogy or, or you know, representation of who you want representing you. But President Trump has actually walk the walk and talk the talk. He's actually come out with the policies that move the needle on American families and move the needle on American lives and business and and job creation. So you have to think about what is your priority? Is your priority uh, to have someone who looks perfect and speaks perfect and never has a bad word? Uh, or is it someone that you want to actually move the needle on your life and your family's opportunities. You can say, I want both, but in life, we don't get everything that we want. This is not the reason that he went to Washington to be you know, perfect and polite to everyone. He actually went to do just the opposite, to not be polite and to call you out when you're not doing your job and to make sure to remind you that guess what? You're supposed to be representing American lives and American families. And so I'm not bothered by it. Well, of course you're not. You're from New York. Correct. I grew up in Brooklyn. And you know what? A lot of my friends have an edge. I don't, I'm not bothered by it. No, I, I meant that, you know, sincerely too, I mean, as well yeah, as jokingly. But there is that type of mentality, right? And that's one of the reasons that New York has been so successful is there is that, you know, we're going to do it. You know, we're going to get it done. And I think that's one of the reasons that we're the great country that we are today. Well, that so doesn't mean that back. we can't have rules at home. And we and that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have our rules of the road for our family and at home. To right. say, you see what he just said, that's not what I want you to say. And that's not what you should be saying. Right. right. Well, I, I just, uh, at a personal note, I will just add, having, having lived and worked in uh, both Washington and New York, uh, uh, it, was a, uh, it was a pleasure moving to New York where people told you exactly what they thought. And exactly. it uh, and, Exactly. At first, it, it could be a little jarring, yeah. but uh, I think over time you appreciate the uh, uh, the the contrast between uh, Washington and uh, I think it was uh, Fred Thompson when he was after his uh, acting career, he became a senator, and he said in Washington he longed for the warmth and sincerity of Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of the things that you talked about, James, was the court, and we're coming up near the end of our, our time here, and there are several items that our people want to get to, but I just want to touch on this a little bit, because I think that the Trump legacy is very poorly understood in this area, and I've been interviewed for the Ninth Circuit on two occasions, and have gone through the process and seen what an excellent system he has put in place, and the quality of the people that he has put on the bench, um, and one of the things that I think people get confused is judicial conservatism, and political conservatism. And judicial conservatism is the documents mean something. The laws that the legislature pass mean something. The power that's given to the president means something. And that those, you know, everybody should stay in their lane is one of the major contributions that I think he's made to the court. And I think it's no better exemplified by the fact that Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, who both were nominated by President Trump, no two justices have ever disagreed more than those two justices have on their time at the bench, because it's they're looking at, they're trying to understand what the original intent was. At the same time, there's been some concern about the manner in which the justices have been put on the court. So can you kind of, the two of you, weigh the balance of the quality, clear quality of the people that he's put on the bench 
versus some of the perception by some of the procedures that he's followed to get them on the bench? Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm glad you asked that because obviously so much of the coverage of Amy Coney Barrett uh, in the press has been just completely uh, nasty and irresponsible and, and uh, painting her as some sort of uh, religious kook. And I, I think um, for people on the left, if they're at all concerned, they should be uh, very much reassured by, by her originalist and textualist philosophy, um, which means uh, if, if uh, beloved uh, laws passed by Democrats and acted by Democrats come before her, she will honor what is written not what she would like it to say, not what she wishes it said. She is going to interpret it as written. And uh, this is very much in the Scalia tradition. Uh, he, you know, you see uh, what an enormous impact he's had, and it was a positive impact to say that uh, uh, politicians uh, can intend what they will, but it's the law they enact that binds us. And so taking the law as, as written um, will often lead so-called conservative justices to to yield liberal results because they are not following a political agenda. They're following what the law says. And so I, I think if properly understood, her uh, appointment should really be welcomed by people across the, the spectrum. And I, I think you're, you actually are starting to see some realization. I'm sorry, I forget the name of the author, but there's a piece in Vanity Fair uh, from someone obviously on the left, but saying, uh, you know, this might not be so bad. We have a person who is who is conscientiously going to uh, protect the laws that our side has enacted and that we treasure. I also like the fact that she is she did not go to an Ivy League college. She is a mother of seven. She represents she she represents a normal woman, you know, dealing with family career. Uh, and we haven't had that on the bench. So I, I think it's refreshing. The, one of the things, obviously, that is a, on everybody's mind these days is the COVID and the president's policies or lack of policies, the masks, all that sort of stuff. And the barometer on that kind of goes up and down depending upon what's going on elsewhere in the world. So the recent outbreak in Europe seems to indicate that maybe our response isn't that different than the other countries. Can you talk about, you know, his kind of the style that he's uh, opted in for and the impact that that has had on our response to this terrible crisis? Well, I think President Trump has made very good moves in response to coronavirus. Look, I think in January of 2020, I interviewed him while I was in Davos at the World Economic Forum, and he did appear that he thought, well, this is okay, that we're going to be fine. You know, I, I think at that point, he did not know enough about what was coming at us, but I don't think anybody did. And I think that he got on track really quickly because a week later, literally, I interviewed him on January 22nd, and we were sort of talking about coronavirus coming. And on January 31st, he stopped all travel from China, which was a huge move. And I remember when he stopped all travel from China, I'm thinking, wow, well, that's aggressive. I mean, it, it was an aggressive move. And let's not forget what many of his critics were doing at that that time, they were impeaching him. 
they were in the middle of an impeachment trial, which started, I think, January 16th or so and finished February 5th. Um, Joe Biden called it xenophobic to stop all travel from China. And Nancy Pelosi was having a party in Chinatown in San Francisco saying, come on down. We, we, you know, we're, we're good. No problems. So I think, you know, sometimes when his critics come up with a narrative, they just drive that narrative forward. And, and, and little by little, America just believes it. And frankly, I don't see a lot of truth to that at all. I mean, you know, his critics continue to say that his biggest failing is COVID, and and yet he stops travel on the 31st. He, you know, rallies together the entire pharmaceutical industry to go on this so-called warp speed to start working on a vaccine. He moves to try to get the proper PPE. I mean, I think the big failing that this administration had was around testing. There was a major problem with testing initially. That was the CDC. Um, and they were de- they were defect they, they were defective, um, and so that is a fair that is a fair argument and also a fair point and also the point when when initially when we first really didn't know much about it he too was like well okay I think he, you know he didn't recognize it to be as significant as it was to come but. Overall, I think he made very good moves in response, and I am really struck by the fact that even though we know that this virus originated in Wuhan, China, and the Chinese Communist Party uh, downplayed it, cornered the market for PPE, and 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 lied about it, and sent exported it all over the world with no warning, his critics have not said at all you know, we're disavowing China or we, you know, recognize that China did this. Um, They continue to blame him and completely ignore any, you know, any role whatsoever that China had, which I I mean, if you want to see protests, how come we're not protesting that? Instead, we're, you know, protesting one another, which I find so crazy. James? Yeah, I I think... um... It's a, obviously it was a threat that a uh, few people understood. Uh, if you want to take any of the prominent uh, public officials, whether it's Nancy Pelosi, Anthony Fauci, anybody, uh, you can come up with tape where they're saying serious, not serious, mask, no mask, et cetera. So uh, the fascination among media folk in early on was we don't have enough ventilators. So he created this system to produce lots of ventilators. Then obviously testing became the concern. Uh, Maria described the struggles there, but the United States that then ramped up its testing to a very high level. Uh, it's not true that we have fared the worst in the world. There are countries in Europe, there are countries in Latin America uh, that have higher per capita death rates uh, than we do. I, I think it's, I mean, I give him credit. I, you, you, uh, you could blame him at times for the, the messaging, the communication, but I I credit him for being one of the few uh, public officials who had the courage to say this cure cannot be worse than the disease. I think his instinctive uh, resistance to shutdowns has been vindicated. Uh, We have seen uh, that the correlation between massive government mandates that crush economies, isolate people, drive mental health needs, uh, you know, put strain on non-COVID medical treatments, uh, that these shutdowns do not correlate all that well with successful COVID outcomes. Uh, the, the two states, after all this time, uh, the two states with the highest per capita deaths from COVID are New York and New Jersey, which locked down 
uh, more harshly than just about anywhere in the country. And uh, there was a constant stream of stories over the last several months about how these crazy governors in the Sun Belt who thought that you needed to allow a functioning economy at the same time you you fought the virus, that, that they were going to preside over massive deaths. It didn't happen. And now what we're seeing is a lot of headlines about rising cases, partly because we do so much testing now, but you're not seeing, fortunately, a surge in deaths. It might be surprising to a lot of people to, to learn that the number of deaths, fortunately, is is uh, per day is, is well below the peaks of last spring. So Obviously, uh, we wish the number were zero, but but this is still a an infection for which there's uh, no cure or vaccine. I, I think um, we were talking about the costs, which largely have been punted into the future. Um, we we need to have a functioning economy that the wealth is what allows us to take care of our health and everything else. So, um, you know, has it been uh, been uh, kind of a difficult path with with a new virus? Uh, that uh, no one knew much about? Yes, but I, I think he is right on the money saying we cannot live in a permanent state of shutdown and, uh, and isolate people. And we, we need to live our lives and focus on protecting the vulnerable. And if I could add one last thing. Yeah, we're he, almost out of time. Okay. On that issue, I, individual freedom has got to get back into this. Yes. If you're an 85-year-old and you want to decide knowing the risks that you want to hug your grandchildren and you're you're willing to accept that risk i think you should be allowed to at the same time i think we need to encourage people to to protect those vulnerable and isolate them because they are at higher risk well i've saved the most difficult question to the end here um with the dodgers winning the world series last night (laughs) and the lakers winning the nba championship who will be the next New York team to win a championship? Will it be the Yankees, Mets, Yank, uh, Rangers, or Knicks? I think, James, you have more credibility on this than I do. <laughs> well, you're you're the native New Yorker who has actually thrown a pitch at Yankee <laughs> Stadium. So right, on, right. right over the plate. <laughs> well, I think that um, we will say that our experts were flummoxed by that last question. <laughs> Thankfully, um, as a Chicagoan who has not forgotten the 1969 Mets, I'm glad to hear that there's no prospect of an imminent New York champion. (laughs) We're all champions in New York. That's right. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Maria and James, for a great conversation. Um, As as you all know by now, they're the co-authors of the book, The Cost, Trump, China, and American Revival which is available at bookstores everywhere. We also want to thank you, our audience, for watching and participating in this program. If you'd like to watch more programs and support the Commonwealth Club, please go online to commonwealthclub.org. I'm Duff Sunheim, and now this program of the Commonwealth Club of California is adjourned. Thank you, and be safe, everyone. Thanks, Duff. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. 
Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.